For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Suzanne. Now, I can tell you that when I get up here and speak, whether it's an opening or if I'm giving the message, I don't usually introduce myself when we get started. But if you think about it, our name is the most easily identifiable thing about us, right? That's who we tell people we are. Um, if we call somewhere and we need to speak with someone, we ask for them by that name. If I needed something from one of the guys back at the soundboard, I would use their name. That way they knew which one I was talking to. And if you're like me, your name is a fortunate reason to hear the song, Oh, Susanna, about a thousand times a year. So hopefully you have something like that for your name too. But as adults, another source of our identity after our name is our job, right? If you go to some sort of social gathering, if you're meeting people for the first time, a lot of the time you say, so where do you work or what do you do for a living? That comes up pretty quickly afterwards. Now, if you're at something like a work networking event where it's kind of around your occupation, you know, that makes sense. But it also seems like kind of a weird barometer outside of that context. Like, what does where I work or what I do for a living really tell you about who I am? How does that help us forge a relationship with one another? What's even stranger to me is we start on this path of our job being our identity from the time we're this big, right? Because we ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? We just say, what do you want to be when you grow up? But because of our culture, because of the emphasis we put on what we do for a living, even the little kids know that that question isn't, what do you want to be when you grow up, but what job do you want to have? What do you want to do with your life when you grow up? Otherwise, the answer would be things like, what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to be funny. I want to be smart. I want to be kind. But instead, the kids answer, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a teacher or queen of the universe. Yeah, that's on a lot of my papers. But then kids grow up a little bit, right? And they get to high school. My daughter's 15 years old, which means she's taken the PSATs. She's getting all these recruitment brochures from colleges coming to the door. Counselors are talking about, you know, what courses you have to take for the rest of high school. That way you make sure you're all set up to go to college or go do that thing that you want to do after high school. She's 15. If you went to my 15-year-old self and said, hey, when you're almost 40, this is what you're going to be doing, I would have laughed so hard. 15-year-old me may have some stuff in common with me now, but my passions and everything that I love about life and what I do and what I feel called to do came as a result of the experiences that I have had over that last 25 years. So it's not surprising that a lot of us reach a point in our life where we're looking back at the decisions we made whether or not we went to college, if we did what we studied, where we went to work, what jobs we took. And we think, I wish I would have chosen something different. Because life has thrown a lot at us and we're not the people we imagined we might be. And while I believe firmly from experience that it is never too late to make a change, it's not always realistic, right? A lot of people in this room might be thinking, 
I would love to do something different, but I don't know how to leave my job. I don't, I've, I've put in so much time. I've grown so much. I'm up so high the ladder. I don't know how to make that kind of radical change now. So what do we do then when we look back on our lives with that regret and say, I wish I would have done something else? So naturally, we can look to the Bible for some wisdom on how to handle this and any other regret. And if we look at the New Testament... A lot of it is those little pieces and the verses that we look to for those daily wisdom and inspiration for how to live. Because if we think about the New Testament, the first four books, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those gave us a picture of Jesus' life, right? He's showing us by example what our lives and how we love people should look like. He's explaining to us, sometimes through really direct speech and sometimes through parables that people still argue what they mean, but he shows and gives that example. He teaches us. But after Jesus is not walking the earth anymore, the first Christians, the early Christians, are like us. They're looking around going, how do we do this? How do we actually follow Jesus? I know what it means in theory, but how does this work within my life? And unlike you and I, right, they couldn't go to Google and say, what does this verse mean, and find a bunch of commentaries. They didn't have the Bible, the Christian Bible as we know it, to pour over and go forward and backwards and reference different things. So they were dependent upon teachers who actually went out and talked to these churches and helped them understand what it meant, like, what it meant to live like Jesus, and one of the most well-known teachers from the New Testament is Paul. He's credited with writing a lot of the different letters, whether it was to churches or to individuals, to help them understand. So those same kinds of questions, how do we live this life following Jesus, the early church had, and Paul helped them with those. But before Paul devoted his life to spreading the gospel, to helping people understand what that life looked like, Paul had a different name, that first identifier. Paul was known as Saul. And the second identifier, what did Paul do for a living? What was his passion? Before it was teaching the gospel, it was persecuting Christians. Now, we can get the beginning of Paul's story in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells us a lot about how those first early churches were formed. And one of the stories in Acts is about a guy by the name of Stephen. So as the churches are forming, they discover that there's this gap and some of the widows aren't being cared for, so they decide they need to make a special committee, a special kind of board of elders, some deacons to manage this piece. And Stephen's tapped for that because Stephen has a heart. They say he is full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen's kind of like this model early Christian that we can look to. But Stephen got in trouble. Stephen was going around professing his faith, and he was telling people about Jesus. So he was accused of blasphemy. And he was brought in front of the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, to be on trial just for sharing the message of Jesus. So Stephen goes in front of the court, and he gives this very lengthy, very impassioned speech, right? Trying to tell the Jewish court that He's not against God like they think he is. He's for God. It's they are missing the part of Jesus, and he wants them to know that. He wants them to have that joy and that source of strength that he has. And we can see their reaction to his speech 
in Acts chapter 7. In verse 54, it starts, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He didn't fall asleep. He died. They brutally brutally murdered Stephen. That is what a persecuted Christian looks like. He was dragged out, brutally killed, just for sharing the message of Jesus. And even his last words echoed the last words of Jesus on the cross. He's asking God to forgive them. He says, do not hold this sin against him. Because his heart is breaking for the fact that they don't understand what they're doing. So Stephen's story is sad. But we also get introduced to this reference. A young man named Saul in verse 58. It doesn't tell us who Saul is or why they're laying coats at his feet. But we can turn to the first verse of chapter 8 to get a glimpse of who Saul was. Acts chapter 8 starts... And Saul approved of their killing him. Saul didn't say, hey, man, it seems a little harsh, or, you know, maybe we could have done this a better way. Or there, there wasn't anything in here that says Saul was at all uncomfortable with what happened. It says Saul approved of what happened. And of course he did, because according to the world that Saul was operating in, and the rules that Saul thought applied, Stephen was against God, and his punishment was just. And Saul didn't stop there. He kept going. We read on in Acts chapter 8, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul was the villain in this story, right? He, he wasn't just an innocent bystander. He wasn't somebody who just didn't speak up. He was actively involved in the persecution and the death and the imprisonment of the early followers of Jesus. None of this seems like a happy story. But we know that God shows up. Now, there's another side of this story. For the, for the early Christians who were persecuted, who were scattered, that meant that they got to go out 
and reach a bunch of people that they may not have reached if they just stayed in where they were. So there's good news, and God shows up in different ways for them. But what we also know is God shows up for Saul. Because no matter what bad decisions, what things that we regret, no matter how many wrong turns we take, God is there for us. And so while God is on his ramp, or while Saul is on his rampage, God shows up in a major way. And we see this in Acts chapter 9. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So Saul, totally blind at this point, goes to Damascus as he's been told. At the same time, a disciple in Damascus named Ananias receives a vision from God that says he needs to visit Saul and help restore his sight. Now, Ananias is confused. He says, isn't this the guy who's been hunting all of us down, imprisoning us, killing us, and you want me to help him? But God persists. And in verse 15, we see God's response. It says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. In that moment, Saul's life changed completely. He went from Saul, persecutor of Christians, to Paul, disciple of Jesus. Now, Paul's life here seems to do a complete 180, right? This is a radical transformation. We're not just talking about the fact that he started going by a different name. We're talking about the fact that he went from killing Christians to being Christian. Except it's not really a total 180. Because everything that Paul had done up to that point in his life, everything he knew from his intense studies of what we call the Old Testament, served Paul in this new role. So even though it seems like he just changed course completely, Paul found a new perspective on what he already had. Paul made a slight right. He broadened his vision. He changed so that it would include Jesus, but that didn't mean scrapping everything that he was before. 
And we see this perspective played out in his letters as he's communicating to these churches and to these individuals about his faith in Jesus, about what they needed to do to follow Jesus. We can read about Paul's countless trials because it's not like Paul became a Christian and uh, life was magical for him, right? I mean, I know that for us, right, becoming a Christian and professing to follow Jesus totally means that life is all rainbows, right? Everything's perfect now, not so much. And it wasn't for Paul either. He imparts some wisdom about these trials to the church in Philippi. In one of his letters, he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So not only did Paul have that shift in perspective, He used his past, but he changed for the future, right? But he also realized that anything that he did that was solely for himself was a waste. I consider them garbage. Garbage. If it's done for ourselves and it's just to make our world better, what's the point? We have to lose those things that we hold tightly to, things like what Paul held tightly to. Our identity and who we are and what we do, how many promotions we got, did we get a raise, do we have a job that we can sound important when we tell people. Those superficial things that do nothing but serve us, they're garbage. But those things that point to Jesus, that point to love, that share with the world, that make the world a better place for the sake of Christ, those are the things that are beautiful. If you're struggling to see the point of what you do, if you look at your job, if you look at the path that you're on in life and you think, I just don't see the point, maybe it's not what you're doing but it's who you're pointing towards. Now, this doesn't mean that I think everybody in this room should walk into their boss's office tomorrow morning, put in your two weeks notice, and go serve in ministry or go be a a missionary somewhere in a foreign land. Not only is that not realistic, but that's also not actually the point. Because the reality is it's not what you do. It's how you do it. No matter what your profession is, If you don't have a profession, if you're a stay-at-home parent or a grandparent who's retired and, and taking care of your grandkids now, whatever you do with your time, it's not what you're doing, it's how you do it because you can make a difference no matter what. When you think of professions that serve God, 
right? I said, don't everybody go quit and become a minister or a missionary tomorrow, unless that's your calling. But all professions can make a difference. And if you're thinking ones that can, you might think of like a nurse, a doctor, somebody who, somebody who saves lives, teachers. God is definitely with our teachers dealing with kids all day, every day. I just got to say that. But think about a tattoo artist, okay? A tattoo artist is probably not the first person that you're going to think of. However, I had a coworker a handful of years ago. Her body was ravaged because she had suffered through breast cancer. Now, she beat the cancer, which is fantastic and amazing, and praise God for that. But her body, at the end of it, looked nothing like the body she started with. So she went to a tattoo artist who helped her. They designed this for months. It was so many sessions to get it done. Now, across a chest that brought her shame and sadness and pain, there is this crazy fire-breathing dragon that's decimating the scars on her chest. And she is so proud of that body now. She felt like she gained control over something she had lost control of completely. And that tattoo artist used their skills and their passion to help her love herself. So now a tattoo artist may not be in ministry, but they are ministering to the hearts of people. There's local tattoo artists who recently did uh, free tattoos for people that had old uh, white supremacist tattoos and were ashamed of them and wanted them covered up. So they donated their time and their services to help these people look on the outside like they had changed on the inside. Anybody, anywhere, no matter what your job is, you can make that difference. We cannot change the past if we studied the wrong thing, if we learned the wrong trade, if we took the wrong job. The past is in the past, and we cannot change it. But what we can change is our mindset. Find that thing about your job that helps you see how you're connecting to people. Actively look for the way that you can make a difference in an end user, in a customer, in your coworker. In the people that report to you, there is something in every job that can do that. But what if you've been in a job and you feel like it's the wrong job for you and you are so burnt out? You are done with what you're doing and you can't even find that perspective, right? The fog is so heavy, you're so worn down. I have been there and I understand it. And what I have to tell you is this. When you can't find that perspective in your job, try to find that perspective elsewhere. I am not even joking with you that serving at Southeast radically changed my life. This is not a commercial. This is not a guilt trip to say, well, you have to come sign up to help. Otherwise, you're not going to have the perspective you need. I want you, just like Paul wanted all the people he taught to know what following Jesus felt like, I want you all to have this perspective because it does change your life radically. When my job was giving me nothing and I felt nothing and I was miserable, I said, I got to do something that matters with my life. 
And I served, and then I started serving more, and I started serving more, and Ryan kept saying, are you sure this isn't too much? But it gave me meaning. And the more that I served people, the more I understood how I could serve people, and that fog started to lift, and it changed my life completely. So whether you need to look at your job and find that perspective, or whether you need to find something else outside to help you get that perspective, the more you actively find ways to open up your heart, the more you will want your heart to be open. So starting today, think about it. Think about your job. Think about what you're doing with your life, how you're spending your time, what your passions are and what your gifts are. And start changing your perspective. So rather than regretting what you're not, you can love and embrace and find the perspective on what you are doing to make sure that your job, how you spend your time, and your life as a whole is pointing to Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gifts and the heart of the people in this room and around the world. We all have a puzzle piece, and we can all come together and fit together in a way that will change this universe. I know that the world can push us down and drag us down. Regrets are like chains. They wrap themselves around us and hold us in place and make it so hard to move. God, enter our lives and enter our hearts and help us to drop those chains. Help us to see that your love and the things that you've built us for can absolutely make an incredibly meaning impact on our hearts, on our lives, on our families, on our communities, and bring your kingdom of heaven here. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.